If, as we say at the end of the previous episode, children who struggle in education, who might even be regarded as failing in education, are indicative not so much of a failing of the child as the failing of the system, then why, given how many children appear to fail, doesn't the system adjust itself to accommodate them? How is it that after centuries of the experimental demonstration that education is for many children simply not fit for purpose, how does it persist in more or less the same form? Well, an answer to this isn't so very difficult to find if we include the systemic immunization that comes from scapegoating. While we're ready to blame a failing child's education on the child because they're variously lazy, badly brought up, genetically insufficient, not clever enough, unintelligent, or whatever you might want to call it, an immunization strategy is a strategy that any system uses to immunize, neutralize threats to itself. Education is not alone in deploying immunization strategies of the kind that we've indicated through scapegoating. It's also true of virtually every human system. One of the worst criticisms that we can level at any system of human thought is that it is circular, i.e. that it presupposes its own conclusions. It argues for its own assumptions without ever acknowledging that they are assumptions. There are lots of examples. Freudianism will tend to immunize itself against evidence to the contrary by pointing out that the people who produce the contrary evidence are themselves the victims of the very causes and forces that Freudianism attempts to analyze. Marxism will defend itself similarly by pointing out that the people who are criticizing it are members of one of its putative higher social classes with a vested interest in demolishing a system that challenges the rightness and appropriateness of those social classes. Education, as we've seen, defends itself, immunizes itself against the accumulated evidence that arises from children who have been failed by it by saying that children are intrinsically unmotivated, monstrous, badly behaved, and all the other negative epithets that they stick to children like the sins of the people that are attached to the scapegoat before it's sent out into the wilderness to die. 
And, of course, religions do the same. Christianity will defend itself against anti-Christian uh, attacks by saying that they are the work of the devil, the work of those who are unchristian, the work of those who have not been touched by the love of God or who have been negatively influenced by the ill will that arises from being unredeemed. And so it goes on. If you were listening to series one, or if you have listened to series one, you will have picked up that circularity is not an avoidable situation where human systems of thought and practice are concerned. Because there is no foundational, impersonal, unquestionable basis upon which rationality can base itself. So the idea that if we were perfectly rational, we would all share a common set of assumptions and with the suitable application of suitable reasoning come to compatible, identical conclusions under which all the problems of the world would be resolved This is just one of the fantasies that rationalism advances in defense of itself. It can always say, well, the reason why we don't agree isn't because there is inevitably conflict. The reason why we don't agree is because we are not sufficiently rational or have not adopted sufficiently rational principles upon which to base our attempts at reaching agreement. So, circularity not being avoidable is something we have instead to deal with, to accommodate, to manage. How might we do that? One of the questions that we can ask, as you might say, as a general principle is... If we are all, and I include myself in this, and no doubt these episodes in this, if we are all, to some extent, in the thrall of a circular system, that is somehow or other, even if we don't recognize it, self-confirming, self-authenticating, self-reaffirming, how might we break out of it? This is like a rephrasing of the biblical question that Jesus asks, if the salt has lost its savour, wherewith can it be salted? It's like Otto Neurath's ship that is floating on the sea underway and has no recourse to solid ground upon which to beach itself or be beached while repairs are effected. If we are of necessity forced to make running repairs while we are on the way, and if we cannot jump outside the system to some neutral 
view from nowhere, to use Thomas Nagel's famous phrase, then what are we to do? How do we revise a system that we can't get out of? Well, the fact that that is something we can recognize is a start. And the fact that we can say, all right, we are within a system that tends to be self-confirming, self-authenticating, self-reinforcing, self-immunizing against all and every assault upon it, that at least gives us a clue to the kinds of change that we might think are both necessary and achievable, practical, feasible. Because we will not manage to change this system wholesale. The ship on the high seas can't, as you might say, this is rather a silly mixed metaphor, snap its fingers and suddenly become a better ship. The only way the ship on the high seas can be made a better ship is bit by bit. By removing such bits as we can and replacing them with such bits as we can. Doing it slowly, doing it experimentally, even doing it playfully as we explore the possibilities that are open to us from the position that we find ourselves in. Now, mention of that points in the direction of one other qualification, one other caveat, that a very subtle form of immunization comes from saying, well, of course, we would change if we were starting from somewhere else. This is the old joke about if I wanted to go to Dublin, I wouldn't start from here. And, of course, it is self-refuting, not self-affirming. It simply isn't possible to start from somewhere other than where we are. What we can do, and this is really where the freedom determinism issue starts to bite, what we can do is refuse to be, as you might say, permanently imprisoned by where we are. We can imagine better things. We can imagine new ways of doing things. And as I pointed out in an earlier episode, even if from day to day or term to term or even year to year, we can't see the progress that we are making in education. If you compare where we are now with the kind of nonsense that was being practiced in the early 19th century, the Hegelian view, the Dotheby's Hall, Wackford Squeers view that Dickens describes in Nicholas Nickleby, if you imagine that we actually don't beat children into submission anymore, or certainly not in this part of the world, we do encourage dissent, we do not rest upon unquestionable authority, We do encourage critical thinking and we do encourage people to use their intelligence and to challenge the system where they don't agree with it, to find their own way to the extent that they can and to seek guidance from any quarter if they feel that it will help them. To that extent, we have come a very long way 
from the Hegelian view at the beginning of the 19th century that the purpose of education was essentially to beat the idiosyncrasy and the individuality and the personality out of every single person to break the body, the spirit and the mind in order to reduce them to compliant instruments of an economy and a, and a political system that was interested in them, in them only as compliant workers or soldiers, cannon fodder, the expression. And so we have come a long way. And we have come a long way by a process that is essentially kind of bootstrapping. But the system itself has given rise to people who have been ready to criticize it, who have not kowtowed before the authority of the system as it is, and who have been ready to say and to practice something that takes us forward. This is the point from series one about not being completely turned to stone as we look backwards into a past that we could so easily be persuaded determined our future. So, what is the way to change a circular system, a self-reinforcing, self-authenticating, self-affirming system that has developed methods of immunizing itself against criticism? One way is to do something that the great Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard used to talk about. You can find it in the concluding unscientific postscript and to a lesser extent in the philosophical fragment, fragments. He described something that you might, that is he called, and we have picked it up, the leap. The leap often to do with faith, because he was writing very much as a Christian philosopher, but it doesn't need to be restricted to a Christian framework. The leap that arises, I'm more or less quoting, by seizing an objective uncertainty in a moment of passionate inwardness. Now, what Kierkegaard is really saying is that we don't or we shouldn't, or we can't rely upon things to force themselves upon us. We need actively to grasp them. We need actively to reach out to what seems uncertain, to what seems unconfirmed, to what might even seem false, but perhaps promising, and lay hold upon it as an objective uncertainty in a moment of passionate This is just the point that Lev Shestov, in his apotheosis of groundlessness, was making. That believing something to be possible is the first step in making it possible. Or, as Henry Ford famously once said, whether you believe you can or you believe you can't, you're probably right. So, what we find is this. 
It doesn't matter whether we're talking about education, Marxism, Freudianism, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Marxist-Leninism, belief in anything where we are or where we find ourselves trapped inside a circular system, although the word trapped is a little unfortunate because there isn't really an alternative to being in a circular system, all systems being circular. But when we find ourselves in a system that proves to be circular, but a system that is simultaneously demonstrating that there is something wrong with it, as witness that so many children appear to fail when perhaps it's the system itself that is failing them, when we find ourselves in a situation where we are confronted by evidence of the insufficiency, the lack of fitness for purpose of the system that we are in, what do we do? We imagine ways out of it, and we experiment, and we play, and we take risks, and we lay hold upon objective uncertainties in a process of passionate inwardness in the firm conviction that they may succeed.